Isaiah 30, 18 to 21. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more. But thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it. When ye turn to the right hand, and when ye turn to the left. Note that there is a blessing in that 18th verse for those who do what? Wait. Wait. Waiting characterizes the remnant people of God. Here is the patience of the saints. And patience is exhibited and is strengthened by waiting. But there are those who don't seem to be able to wait. They get into difficulties. Saul did. He waited seven days for Samuel, and when the time appointed passed and Samuel hadn't appeared, he says, I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. Something had to be done. Samuel said, you've done foolishly. Blessed are all they that wait for him, for God. And just now, friends, there are those who are learning, and I trust each one here tonight will share in it, the lesson of waiting. You'll see what I'm thinking about as we proceed further into our study tonight. Now on that 20th verse, the last part, I want to read it to you. And also the next verse with it as Moffat translates it. Other translations also agree in rendering that teachers, teacher, the divine teacher, Christ. Though scant and scarce may be your bread and water from the Lord, yet he, your teacher, never leaves you now. You see your teacher for yourselves. And when you swerve to right or left, you hear a voice behind you whispering, This is the way. Walk here. So who's our teacher? Christ is our teacher. And it is our privilege to sense his guidance and direction from day to day. It is our privilege. Now, in the 21st verse, we have the wonderful promise that when we are in danger of turning to the right hand or to the left, in danger of swerving, as Martha translates it, that we will hear a voice, his voice, say, don't do that. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. This is the way. Walk ye in it.
And that is what I wish to study with you tonight. Left or right or center? Left or right or center? Which way are you going? Well, according to this text, it's heaven's plan for us to turn neither to the right hand nor to the left. God told Moses and Joshua that more than once. Don't turn to the right hand, don't turn to the left. And my dear friends, the right hand is not the same as the left hand. If you get off of a road on the right hand, it's a different side road from the one you get on if you get off on the left hand. Am I correct? There's just one thing in which both roads are alike. What is it? They're off the road. They're off the road. And so the heavenly voice, the divine teacher, is walking with us. And he's saying, this is the way. And when you swerve to the right hand, he says, no, don't go that way. This is the way. And when you swerve to the left, he says, no, don't go that way. Go this way. Go this way. In volume 4, page 75, occurs this interesting comment. God calls for men and women of stability, a firm purpose, who can be relied upon in seasons of danger and trial, who are as firmly rooted and grounded in the truth as the eternal hills, who cannot be swayed to the right or to the left, but who moves straight onward and are always found on the right side. That's an interesting use of words. The people who are always found on the right hand, on the right side never swayed to the, to the right or the left. They're moving straight forward. There's nothing contradictory about that, is there? The right side is in the center. It's not on either fringe. the difficult thing about this whole problem is that the people who are on the left think it's awful to be over on the right fringe and sometimes identify the center with it. But the people who are on the right fringe think it's a terrible thing to be on the left and they often identify the center with it. Therefore, if you are in the center, you will get shot at, both from the right and from the left. And it is well to know that and be prepared for it and not get discouraged over it, because that's your portion. In fact, if you're in the center, you'll get shot at without shooting back at either one. We'll see that more clearly as we go along this evening. For my dear friends, those who finally triumph with this movement will be those who know the peril both of the left and of the right and who are determined 
to hold solid with the center core of this movement, the hard core of loyalty to God's remnant church. They're not going to turn to the right hand or to the left. Now I'd like to have you test yourself tonight. I'll tell you this, you have a tendency to turn to the left or you have a tendency to turn to the right. There's no human being that's been born in this world since Adam and Eve sinned, but what has trends in one direction or the other. In fact, we are told that it's even worse than that, that there is in human nature a tendency to go to extremes and from one extreme to another exactly opposite. But don't try to judge other people. The Bible says, let a man do what? Examine himself. I want to give you some little checkpoints that you can use to see. First, I'm going to uh, deal with those who are compromising. You can think of them if you want to as the left, or you can think of them if you want to as the right, at one side or the other. I'm not concerned with labeling them left or right. I am concerned that we understand fully that compromisers are not in the center, but that's what they boast of, of walking in the middle of the road. They walk in the middle of a road. Jesus tells us about it in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. There's room for all shades of compromise. But compromisers are not in the middle of the road, the straight and narrow road that Jesus spoke of. But that's just as wide as one man, and that one man is Jesus Christ. Compromisers are not in the middle of that road, they're clear off to one side. And so let not their boast of being in the middle of the road deceive you. I'm going to give you six points of identification of the compromisers. In the first place, they lean toward the world. That's why they go toward the world. They're always leaning toward the world. If any question of standards comes up, you'll find them leaning on the worldly side. If you have that tendency, friends, beware. Something to be afraid of. The second point of identification of compromisers is that they say times have changed. And so what was written in the spirit of prophecy a hundred years ago or 50 years ago, can hardly be expected to be applied now. Things have changed so much in educational lines, in medical lines, in many other lines. 
that much of what is written here must be accepted merely as good counsel appropriate for the time in which it was written and helpful in giving us guiding principles for today, but not to be used to actually direct our details in the minutiae of our lives. Such talk is the hallmark of the compromises. How do I know? Volume 5, page 211. Speaking of some in the church who had stood as guardians of the spiritual interests of the people and had betrayed their trust, it says they had taken the position that we need not look for miracles in the marked manifestation of God's power as in former days. Times have changed. These words strengthen their unbelief. Thus, peace and safety is the cry from men who will never again lift up their voice like a trumpet to show God's people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. A very serious indictment, friend. We, you and I, should not take it into our hands to apply that statement to this person or that person, but you and I should individually look into our hearts and see if such a spirit lurks within our thoughts. If so, we should pray God to help us get rid of it. And may I say to your friends that God from time to time has spoken to us on this matter not only through the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, but from the men that he has in his providence arranged to lead his people. I want to note this warning from Elder Watson. For a number of years, the president of the General Conference, this is from the review of November 1, 21, November 21, 1935. There is setting in on this people a tide of worldliness to which we are surrendering. I do not mean to imply that we are not resisting these influences at all. But I believe that the measure of resistance that we are putting forth is not holding us. We are gradually being swept backward and should be alarmed about it. Our resistance of worldly influences is seriously diminishing. I am troubled by the direction that our educational and training work is definitely taking. I am concerned by the more and more obvious fact that in the education and training of our workers, we are inquiring more of the world and less of God than formerly. That statement was given by the president of our general conference 20 years after the servant of the Lord passed to our arrest. Elder McElhaney, who followed Elder Watson as president of the general conference, on more than one occasion gave expression to his deep concern over the worldly trends within the church. In the Review and Herald of December 3, 1936, he said, Our greatest danger today is the attitude taken by so many of our people of accepting with apparent satisfaction their present low spiritual condition and not being very much concerned about it. The time has come for a thorough reformation to take place. 
there is coming to the church a listlessness, a carelessness that is deplorable. Following Elder McElhaney came Elder Branson as president of the General Conference. In the Review and Herald of December 16, 1950, Elder Branson wrote, We are not so faithful and zealous for God in the truth as we once were, and the end of the world is just upon us. We need that revival now. It is the greatest of all our needs. What do you say, friend? So I say, we have been warned in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy and by various of our church leaders that there needs to be a turning from the world instead of leaning toward the world and compromising with it. A third mark of the compromisers is that they place human reason in place of divine revelation. How do I know that? Because I read it in volume 5, page 79. There are men among us in responsible positions who hold that the opinions of a few conceited philosophers, so-called, are more to be trusted than the truth of the Bible or the testimonies of the Holy Spirit. There is a spirit of idolatrous exaltation of mere human reason above the revealed wisdom of God. If you find in your heart the slightest disposition to accept what so-called science says, or any human reasoning instead of the Bible and the testimonies, brother, sister, You must pray God to get that out of your heart, for that's the spirit of worldly compromise. Another mark of the compromisers is that they excuse or defend compromise with sin. For example, they may point out that such and such a thing is good public relations and that we should do it. may be compromised, but it will have a good influence, bring a good name to the church. They may even point out that it's a good way to win souls, is not to be so peculiar, not to be so separate, not to be so distinctive. Just this week, my, I happened to see such a classic example of that sort of reasoning. I couldn't resist clipping it and bringing it here tonight. This is in the paper Christianity Today. It uh, goes to a large number of Protestant ministers, not a Seventh-day Adventist paper, but uh, it, it is to Protestant Christianity, something like Newsweek or Time is to popular news. That is the fundamentalist branch of the church, you might say. But this particular piece that I'm going to read is a letter to the editor. Somebody had written in a former issue something against tobacco and liquor. But this man rises to the defense of both of them as possible means of soul winning. Yes, that's what he says. Listen. The man that he challenged said this. I learned the hard way that you can't witness for Christ with a cigarette or a glass of beer in your hand if you want to be effective. You agree with that, don't you? 
But this man writing in protest says, and listen, oh listen, this writer has sounded more welcome notes of God's gracious gift of salvation with a cigarette or a glass of beer in hand than at any other time. Wouldn't be hard to label him a compromiser, would it? And then he adds this wonderful gem at the close. May God bless us with the will to practice unity and essentials, liberty and non-essentials, and give us the wisdom to know the difference. I've heard that before, have you? And I want to tell you something, dear friends. The cigarette and the mug of beer are not the only things that are paraded forth as means of sociability in order to break down prejudice and win friends and influence people for Christ and his truth. But Christ never purchased peace by compromise. And so when we see those who are prepared to excuse or defend compromise, we know that that is not the center of the road at all. It's turning to the right hand or to the left. Another mark of the compromisers, listen to this, and that is that they accuse those who will not unite with them in compromise of being disloyal to organizations. They will circulate reports to injure the influence of men who stand up for truth and right and high standards. Another very interesting mark of the compromiser is that while he may talk a great deal of loyalty to organization, He may disregard the repeated actions of the church through the general conference in calling for high standards. Brethren and sisters, the truths that need emphasis today and the standards that need exalting are not some new light. They are the faith that was once delivered to the saints. They are the standards that have been upheld in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and by repeated appeals from the leaders of this church. Those are the standards that need exalting. And I say, how dare a man posing to speak for organization, brand as disloyal to organization those who are standing for and repeating the standards of this denomination as expressed through its official mouthpieces. How dare that be done? But it is done again and again. So do not be deceived by the loud voice expressions of loyalty to organization by those who compromise and seek to lead the church into the paths of world conformity. What will be the end of that spirit of compromise? What will be the end? What will be the end of those who indulge these worldward trends and go with the compromisers in world conformity? Our friends, that's the sad picture. It's given us in volume 5, page 81. There are two things about it I hope you'll notice carefully as I read. 
The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. In this time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. Chaff like a cloud will be borne away on the wind, even from places where we see only floors of rich wheat. Many a star that we've admired for its brilliancy will then go out in darkness. Notice two things about the compromises. They're going out when the mark of the beast is enforced against us. They're going out in clouds of chaff. They're going out some of them brilliant stars that once shone in the firmament. But the second thing I want you to notice is that multitudes of them are not going out until that time. They remain in the church to plague the church with their world-loving influence until the pressure of the world itself in the enforcement of the mark of the beast forces them out. Isn't that a solemn thought, friends? Isn't that a challenging thought? If this is true, and I am reading it from inspiration, do you not see, friends, that the presence of even large numbers of those who indulge compromising tendencies in the church. That doesn't mean that the church is not going through. It's fulfilling prophecy. Also, this means that no matter how much we labor for the purifying of the church, as the spirit of prophecy says, all our zeal today will not succeed in making the church militant as pure as the church triumphant. The chaff, tons of it, if you can think of tons of chaff, the, the chaff, tons of it, will burden the church and perplex the church until the final issue over the mark of the beast. And that's the sad end of the compromising segment in God's church, friend. Do you see why that your teacher, your heavenly teacher, when you are in danger of turning to the right hand or to the left, says, no, don't do that. Don't follow even a multitude to do evil. This is the way. Walk ye in it, no matter how many. Pull off to one side. But now I turn to the other side of the road for it. For there never was a road yet, but what there were two sides to get off on. And our verse says that when you turn to the right hand or turn to the left, that the voice says, this is the way. And the hallmark of this other side is criticizing. 
while those on one side compromise, those on the other side criticize. And what are the testing points that you can check yourself to see whether or not you belong to this class and whether you're in danger of getting into it? Here they are, friends. First, and as I give you these points, remember this. You wouldn't need to have all of these to be in this class. To have even one of these would put you in this class. Even one. The first is, they will not submit to church organization. They will not submit to church organization. Closely allied to that is their lack of confidence in the church or in its leadership. Now, they're all degrees in the side of criticizing, just as they're all degrees in the side of compromise. But running through all these on the side of criticizing is a lack of confidence in the church and in its leadership. Otherwise, why would they criticize? May I share with you just one sentence on this? We might read a hundred statements, but I want to read just one sentence from volume 3, 355. It is hardly possible for men to offer a greater insult to God than to despise and reject the instrumentalities that he has appointed to lead them. So those who are spending their time saying things and doing things which weaken confidence in the church and its leadership are insulting whom? God. Another mark of this group is that in one way or another, they leave the idea that God is with just the few, the scattered, rather than with the movement as a whole. How do I know this? Because I read it in volume 1, page 417. God is bringing out a people and preparing them to stand as one, united to speak the same things and thus carry out the prayer of Christ for his disciples. What was that prayer? That they all may be one. There are little companies continually arising who believe that God is only with the very few. Volume 1, 417. Do they believe it? Apparently. They teach it. What is it? There are little companies continually arising who believe that God is only with the very few, the very scattered, and their influence is to tear down and scatter that which God's servants build up. The next point I want you to notice in checking yourself and in warning your soul against those who have this spirit is that those who criticize, they teach or imply, they leave the impression that a new movement is necessary. Now some of them go so far as to actually start a new movement. We've had a number of those all along the way for the last hundred years. But you know an interesting thing? Some of these that start new movements, when they're starting, they absolutely deny that they have any thought of starting another movement. 
there is a subtle variation of this theme. That's it. They say, why, no, of course not. We wouldn't think of having a new movement. This movement is going through. But it's going to have a change of leadership. A change of leadership. In other words, there will be a new movement not by an offshoot, but by a revolution. May I warn your soul against all such inferences? On this, I give you one statement. Book 1 of Selected Messages, 179. The servant of the Lord was writing to a minister who was preaching to our people on various subjects. And she says, you will take passages in the testimonies that speak of the close of probation, of the shaking among God's people, and you will talk, watch, and you will talk of a coming out from this people of a purer, holier people that will arise. Now all this pleases the enemy. We should not needlessly take a course that will make differences or create dissension. We should not give the impression that if our particular ideas are not followed, it is because the ministers are lacking in comprehension and in faith and are walking in darkness. Now I come to one of the most important points in testing this spirit of those who criticize. That is, they circulate reports derogatory to the church or its leaders. They circulate reports derogatory to the church or its leaders. Now, the reports might be true or they might be false. I'm going to deal with both. I'll deal with the true reports first. Do you suppose it might be possible for somebody in the church to make a mistake? Do you suppose it might be possible for a minister in the church to make a mistake? Do you suppose it might be possible for a leader in the church to make a mistake? <laughs> Has it been done? Yes, even Moses did, didn't he? And right here, my friends, is one of the great hallmarks of the criticizers. When a leader makes a mistake, they grab on that like a buzzer does a chorus. And they call the other buzzards to come and help enjoy it. Now, somebody is not going to like what I've just said, but my friends, I believe the time has come to speak plainly. I believe we should brand with the proper brand those who are so eager to gather up every morsel that seems to reflect upon our dear church and its leadership. If we really love the church, we will not want to listen to that kind of thing or pass it around. And if the report is true, more is the pity for it. More is the pity. I've often said that I'm so glad my wife loves you. Because I know she's not around telling you about my faults and mistakes. Has she? No, she doesn't. See, I'm safe as far as that's concerned. 
My dear friends, the church and its leadership ought to be safe in our hands when it comes to passing around reports of mistakes and failures on the part of leaders, shouldn't it? Now, there's a proper way. We know, of course, if somebody's making a mistake and you can help him, go talk to him about it. What I'm talking about right now is doing what? Circulating reports that are derogatory. Now, I said I was going to give you something both on true reports and false reports. Here's a letter Sister White wrote to a minister back in 1894. It's letter 48-1894. This letter was written to a minister, and he'd written some things about mistakes of other workers. Listen. Elder Blank... You have undertaken to point out the defects of reformers and pioneers in the cause of God. No one should trace the lines which you have done. You have made public the errors and defects of the people of God, and in so doing have dishonored God and Jesus Christ. I would not for my right arm have given to the world that which you have written. Think of it. You have not been conscious of what would be the influence of your work. Somebody says, but in the Bible it tells about the mistakes of God's people and even the leaders. Yes, it does, but listen, while the Lord's messenger answers that point. Let God by inspiration trace the errors of his people for their instruction and admonition, but let not finite lips or pins dwell upon those features of the experience of God's people that will have a tendency to confuse and cloud the mind. The fact that God tells the mistakes of Moses and David and Peter and all the rest doesn't give you and me license to give publicity to the errors and mistakes of our brethren. Isn't that clear in the light of this? You can see why, friends. God knows when to do it and how to do it. One more statement from this same letter. God will charge those who unwisely expose the mistakes of their brethren with sin of far greater magnitude than he will charge the one who makes a misstep. Think of it. It's worse to circulate reports, true reports, about the mistakes of leaders than it is to make the mistake in the first place. You can see why it greatly multiplies and compounds the influence of it, doesn't it? Creates lack of confidence, division, and all sorts of things. Oh, my friends, God save us from getting off the road. What do you say? Criticism and condemnation of the brethren are counted as criticism and condemnation of Christ. I don't want to get my hands in that sort of thing. Do you, brethren? Oh, let's close our ears to reports. Now, I mentioned these reports may be true, but sometimes they're false. Again and again, Elder and Sister White had to suffer as false reports were circulated. And the leaders of our people today, again and again, have to suffer through false reports. I want to read a statement on that from Volume 1, page 251. There is a class who profess to believe the truth, but who cherish secret feelings of dissatisfaction against those who bear the burden in this work. Such readily receive, cherish, and circulate reports which have no foundation in truth. 
to destroy the influence of those who are engaged in this work. All who wish to draw from the body will have opportunity. Something will arise to test everyone. The great sifting time is just before us. The jealous and the fault-finding who are watching for evil will be shaken out. What did we find was going to happen to the compromisers? They're going to be sifted out. What's going to happen to the criticizers? They're going to be shaken out. Would you see, friends? It's just a question of which road to take. If you turn to the right hand, you get off the road. If you turn to the left hand, what? Get off the road. 